The Subscription Box Show, episode 171. Hey, this is Robbie Kelman Baxter, author of The Membership Economy and The Forever Transaction. And if you want to learn how anyone can start or grow a successful subscription box, then you have to listen to The Subscription Box Show with my good friend, Eric Music. There's a lot to learn when it comes to e-commerce and subscription boxes. Whether you're a new or existing business, your list of questions can seem endless and daunting. Welcome to the Subscription Box Show, where you'll hear high-quality, unbiased views and strategies from top industry leaders. Whether we're talking one-on-one with business professionals or deep-diving into thought-provoking case studies, we'll find the answers to your questions. Because this is the show you've been waiting for. Now, let's think inside the box with your host, Eric Music. Welcome to the Subscription Box Show. I'm your host, Eric Music, and I want to help you build, grow, and even start your very own subscription box business. Make sure to tune in two days a week as I interview the top entrepreneurs, leaders, and subscription box owners in the industry. You'll be able to take their knowledge, experience, and expertise and apply it to your business. Hey everyone, welcome here. In this episode, I have the honor and pleasure of talking with the foremost expert in the subscription box industry. She is an author, a keynote speaker, a podcast host, consultant, the co-founder of the D2C Summit, and advisor to the world's leading subscription-based companies, the one and only Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Robbie Kelman-Baxter is the founder of Peninsula Strategies, LLC, a management consulting firm, as well as the author of the best-selling book, The Membership Economy. Her new book, The Forever Transaction was released in April of 2021 this year. Robbie hosts a podcast as well, Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches, which has featured subscription practitioners from Weight Watchers, HP, Bain & Co., and Impossible Foods, as well as numerous researchers and authors in subscription. Fun fact, Robbie is the one who actually coined the popular business term, membership economy, which is now being used by organizations and journalists around our industry. If all of that wasn't impressive enough, have a listen at some of Robbie's clients. They've included extremely large organizations like Netflix, The Wall Street Journal, Nike, and Microsoft, as well as dozens of smaller venture-backed companies. Over the course of her career, Robbie has worked in or consulted to clients in more than 20 industries. Before starting Peninsula Strategies in 2001, Robbie served as a New York City Urban Fellow, a consultant at Booz Allen and Hamilton, and a Silicon Valley product marketer. Robbie has been featured by dozens of media outlets, all of the big names, including CNN, NBC, and NPR. As a public speaker, Robbie has presented to thousands of people in corporations, associations, and universities. She has an AB from Harvard College and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So with all of that and the fact that I'm just a big fan of Robbie's, I can't wait to share my conversation with you. But first, I'd like to thank our brand new sponsors, Manscaped. And if you're like, What did he just say? Let me quickly explain what manscaping is. Manscaping means taking care of your, well, areas that are private. And Manscaped has the exact tools to best help you down there. They help you keep everything trim and proper and without the pain of unnecessary cuts. Plus, you won't have to use your regular razors and hair clippers anymore. Gross, right? Manscaped has just launched their brand new Lawnmower 4.0, which includes the following. 
It's made with skin-safe and quiet-stroke technology. The trimmer featuring a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents with their skin-safe technology. It's waterproof, so it's safe to use in the shower, and it charges wirelessly. And my favorite part, it has a cool LED light. Ladies, most guys won't buy this for themselves, so this is your chance. And guess what? Ladies, you can use the Lawnmower 4.0 as well. And just for the listeners of this show, Manscaped has an amazing deal just for you. You can see more and save 20% off by visiting Manscaped and using the discount code TSBS. Again, that's manscaped.com and use the code TSBS for 20% off. So make sure to go and support the show's sponsors as they really keep the show going. And if you already are a customer of this episode's sponsor, then you can still help by giving the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. So thanks in advance for that. And of course, please hit the follow or subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already. I'd also love to know what you think about the show, and I'd like to know more about your subscription box. And the best way to connect with me and our community is to join our private group on Facebook, the Subscription Box Show Facebook group. There you can post all of your questions, feedback, and comments, and either myself or one of the hundreds of other Subscription Box entrepreneurs will help you. Now, without further ado, let's get into it in my conversation with Robbie Kelman-Baxter, author of The Forever Transaction and the best-selling book, The Membership Economy. All right, super excited to have on the show today, all the way from California. She is a subscription expert, the author of The Membership Economy and The Forever Transaction. She's an advisor to the world's leading subscription-based companies, a keynote speaker. She's got a lot of things going on. She's also actually the co-organizer or co-founder maybe of the D2C Summit. So without further ado, Robbie Kelman-Baxter, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. I've been following your stuff for a long time through LinkedIn and all the email lists. I'm part of your email list and I get all your emails. So I'm really excited to have you on. Maybe for those who've never heard of who Robbie Kelman Baxter is, she is an expert in the subscription industry. Maybe give us an elevator pitch, a snapshot of who you are and what you do. Sure. For the last 20 plus years, I've been completely focused on understanding how subscription businesses work and don't work. I started in 2001 working with Netflix when they were still just on the east and west coasts of the United States. And from there, worked with, you know, SurveyMonkey, Intuit, Oracle, lots of different businesses, and ended up writing first the membership economy to explain the power of the business model that I was so enamored of, and then later writing the forever transaction to actually break it down for entrepreneurs so they could see how to build their own subscription business. I love that. So those two books kind of like are part one, part two. They're not, but they sort of are, right? We were talking about that <laughs> yeah. out there. So for those who like really want to know more about the membership economy, the subscription industry, this is book one. You want to get the book one first, and then you're going to graduate to book two, and it gives you the nuts and bolts on exactly how to do that. Did I say that correctly? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> okay, so we're going to get into all the stuff you do. Like you said, you, I mean, you've been in this industry for a long time. I don't think anybody knows more than you. I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about. You're involved in so many different touch points with big brands, smaller brands. I mean, you're talking about the Nikes of the world. You mentioned Netflix in 2001. I didn't even know it was a thing in 2001. <laughs> so I know. we're going to get into all that. But maybe first, just give us a little bit about your background so we get to know you a little better, Robbie. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And uh, we'll just quickly learn more about you first. Yeah, well, so like you, I have some Canadian roots. My mom is from Montreal. My dad's from New York. When I was four, we moved to California, seeking, like many people, a better life and more opportunity. From weather? My dad's from everything. (laughs) Weather. (laughs) My dad came, he'd actually been working at a Wall Street law firm for four years. I think he was 28. And he and his pals said, we're going to start a Wall Street style law firm in California because they don't have any. 
which was what young people bold, you know, we're going to just go out there and we're going to take the world by storm. So he started a law firm here and I watched him for a very conservative risk averse lawyer. He was incredibly entrepreneurial and, you know, the firm ended up being quite successful. And then in his fifties, he started a venture firm here. So I watched my dad be very entrepreneurial, go after things, create things out of nothing. And that's kind of one thread at the same time as he's a very, you know, sort of risk averse, I wouldn't say conservative, but risk averse person. My mom is a ready fire aim person. She kind of goes charging out into the world and starts before she has all the facts, doesn't waste time on the instruction manual. So that's how I was raised here in Northern California, Silicon Valley. And I was a good student, a good girl, went to good college, went to business school, worked at big consulting. And then I kind of stepped off that path and went as an independent consultant. First, because I got laid off when I was on maternity leave and I wanted to be in control of my own career. And then after about five years, I sort of give myself five years to say, I'm going to take a break from my career and do this consulting thing. Mm. And then at the five-year mark, I said, you know what? I'm going to really build something here. I'm going to invest in being an independent consultant. And I looked for an area to focus on and using this, you know, I was a strategy consultant. I'd been a product manager. I was in Silicon Valley. I was looking for something to fall in love with, to really focus on. And as I mentioned earlier, I found Netflix. And as I was falling in love with them, everybody else was. And that was really kind of what brought me to the world of subscriptions. Incredible. So Netflix, was it in California then? Was this something that was in your state? Yeah, it was. eh? Yeah, it's here. It's nearby. My friend was working there and she said, oh, you know, we have a pile of opportunities that are kind of nobody is really assigned to them. We have some other little projects, all kind of in the general like marketing strategy space that just people are busy and there's nobody who really owns it. Can you come in for six weeks and just handle it? That was sort of the first project, just figure out what's worth doing, what's not worth doing, prioritize, come up with a way of prioritizing these random inquiries. And I ended up staying for two years and doing about 12 different engagements with them. They're based here in, in, I say Los Gatos, which is maybe like, it's a, at the time I thought of it as like kind of a suburb 30 minutes South of where I lived close to San Jose. So I'd drive down there and work on, on different projects for a pretty extended period of time. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I'm sure in Silicon Valley, there's all these like different types of companies always starting up, right? That's how I envision it as a central Canadian boy. Yeah, totally. So I'll I'll tell you another story. So I live in Menlo Park. Around the corner from me is the house where Google started. Um, no where Susan, Wojcicki, I don't know if you know that story, but Susan no. Wojcicki, who is now the CEO of YouTube, she's been at Google pretty much the whole time. She bought this house. It was a five bedroom house and it's very expensive to live here. Real estate's really expensive. And I remember her saying like, well, you know, I'm going to rent out three of the rooms. We just have one baby and we don't need five bedrooms. So we're going to rent out the three downstairs bedrooms <laughs> and the garage to this guy that my friend knows who's starting a company, these guys, Sergey and Larry, and they're going to just work there. And they ended up starting Google there. And it's literally like if you're walking, like when I, when I used to walk my dog before, you know, you walk by that house. It's so close. So yeah. So, and Facebook is in Menlo Park. It's a great place to be an entrepreneur. It's a great place to be a consultant because there's so many companies here. Out there. I got a question for you. I mean, you probably, like you said, you do see a lot of these companies come and go. What maybe separates something like in 2001, Netflix making it, you think being around a company like that, that grew to what they are today. Everyone knows Netflix, they're global to maybe some that 
you would have worked with or seen or consulted with that didn't make it? And uh, maybe what are the, some of the starch differences maybe that you see? Yeah. So I think one thing is luck, which I always want to sort of be clear about that, that sometimes you do everything right and it just, your timing is off or mm. something just doesn't quite work out. I think that's a big part here. And you see that with Silicon Valley because a lot of founders, if you kind of dig beneath the surface, they've already had two or three failures or they had a big success. And then the thing that they do after that isn't successful because a big part of it is luck. I think another thing is grit and kind of a willingness to pivot. They talk about here all the time, but you know, if it's not working, just don't hold too fast to any one idea, be open. And I would say as a subscription person, the companies that follow the market, as opposed to following the product, like a product looking for a home is less likely to be successful, I think, Hmm. than a market that has a problem. So they say in the world of investing that you either invest in the jockey, the horse, or the racetrack. (laughs) And meaning, of course, are you investing in the founder? Are you investing in the company? Or are you investing in the space? And so keeping that in mind, and if you're the jockey, you're the entrepreneur, picking the right racetrack is going to get you very, very far. Yeah, I love that product looking for a home versus like a market problem. And that can be difficult. I think that might be the natural inclination. You have this product or idea and you want to find a place for it to fit, right? So maybe tell us some of the other things when it comes to like market fits. Is there certain things you guys do when you're looking at maybe a a company you're trying to help out with to try to get them out there? Is there specific things that that come to mind in the beginning stages, especially in those early days? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So market validation is so important. And especially a lot of entrepreneurs want to jump to like what I think of as the Marcom part where they're like, and this is what our brand is going to look like. And this is how we're going to tell people about it. And we're going to charge $20 for the small box and $40 for the big box. And you're like, whoa, let's call the back and say, who is the box for? And what is going to make them sign up? And what is going to make them stay? Right? What are the features or benefits that you're going to offer them? Let's get that right first before we start working on the communications, how we're going to tell them that. So there is a process for validation, whether you're just getting started and you're all by yourself or you're the largest company in the world and you're launching a new product, you start with validation. You start by figuring out what's the problem we're solving and who are we solving it for and get clear on that. And then does our way of solving it achieve those goals according to those people? So tell me about your problem and then would you describe your problem like this? Because I want to make sure I'm understanding it. Mm. And then if I brought you this, do you think that would solve your problem? And do that before you start building anything. Yeah, that's great stuff. I love that. I'm going to have to write some notes on these because there's so many, give me, I think there's been a lot of great quotes coming from these. Is there sometimes a product you think, you know, you see people that want to get into maybe a subscription-based brand type of thing that are not made to be a subscription? And can anything be a membership or subscription at this point? Yeah. So a couple of different ways of answering that. So first of all, in the world of subscriptions, because I think about this a lot, you know, what isn't a subscription? If your promise, like I just said, what is the problem you're solving? If your customer doesn't have any alternatives besides your product, you don't really need to worry about building any kind of relationship with them, right? Because they're going to come back, whether you price it as a subscription, whether you get to know them, whether you're nice to them or not, if you have the drug that's going to keep their baby alive, or you're the last gas for a hundred miles, or if you have a geography advantage, a regulatory advantage, a patent advantage, 
When I hear somebody works in an oil and gas something, I say, oh, I probably can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're competing with other options for that customer, subscription can work. But then what I would say is you have to be focused on their long-term goal or the problem that they're trying to solve on an ongoing basis. So in the world of subscription boxes, that might be like, life is hard and I want to laugh or I want to take care of myself. I want to feel loved. I want to have a hug every month. Or I like to look fashionable and I don't like to shop. Or I get really bored with my snacks. Like Some of these are bigger problems for people than others. And some of them last for a long time and some of them only last for a short time. So you really want to focus on a business. If you're a subscription box entrepreneur, you really want to focus on a promise that is going to be active for a long time. So one of the things that I see that I think a lot of businesses get wrong is they're talking about curated value, right? Like, oh, we have all the best makeup, right? And I might sign up because I'm tired of how my, I think, oh, I look old. I'm wearing the same lipstick I've been wearing since I was in high school. But after three boxes, each with a new lipstick, I probably find my new favorite. And then I, I'm mm-hmm. kind of done, right? I don't need new stuff every month unless I'm a makeup junkie. Right. right. So the audience for a curated box would probably be that extreme case, which is fine. You can make a great living and there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of makeup junkies. But for a person who's just looking to look nice and professional and attractive every day, once they find, you know, one or two products in a category, they're probably set. It's like, how many ties can dad wear when you're a tie of the month club? Right. At some point he's like, okay, I've got six new ties. I wear a tie about once a month. I think I'm good. So I think that's an area where if you're building a subscription box to think twice. And then I think the last area to think about, and I think this is true of entrepreneurs in general, is a lot of times you become an entrepreneur because you personally love that space and you want to be in that space, but it's not necessarily good business. So I did a lot of work in the bicycle industry, the kind of high-end bicycle industry. And Almost everybody, I mean, a a huge percentage of people that are in the bicycle manufacturing companies and companies that make bikes, but also the bike retailers, they're all bike racers and people who love to tinker with their bikes and swap out pieces. That is actually not who buys bikes, right? That's a very small category. And all of those companies are all fighting for people like them. Mm. And yet there's this whole blue ocean of moms with buying power to buy five bikes, right? Like I come into a bike store and I'm like, I have three kids. My husband and I want to get more exercise. I want five bikes, please. Yeah. Right. But nobody wants to sell to that person because they're all in it because they want to hang out with bike people. And so I think you have to decide when you're launching your business, are you doing this because you want to be in a cool, fun space? You know, I love clothes, so I'm going to have a clothes box. Or are you doing it because you want to have a good business? In which case I'd advise you to go look at the racetrack and pick the one where the opportunity is going to be greatest. Yeah, that's gold. And I think, um, is it just going back to the bicycle example, like, is that maybe just because it's harder to, like, you know how to find that bike junkies, like, you know what they look like, you can see them, right? Is it hard to find that mom that's willing to buy five bikes or that family going to look? Is it not uh, hard? Okay. No, just not fun, right? Like, think about, you get into the, like, the other one that I used to joke about is, for one of my kids, I have three kids, when they were little, I drove a minivan, right? And I went to the dealership and they were talking to me about the engine and they were talking to me about the wheels. And sometimes it's just about the cup holders, right? What I wanted to know is, you know, are there cup holders? And if my kids put their arms out, will they hopefully not touch each other so that they don't hit each other when I'm driving? And 
if you're a car maker, like if you grew up loving cars, you know, one of my clients is Haggerty, which is they insure classic cars and they're like real car people, right? If you're one of those kind of people and you're working at Toyota, you may push back on wanting to be on the minivan team. And yet that's maybe their most profitable business. Right. Right. They're not hard to find. Moms aren't hard to find. They actually are very decisive. They're easy to find. They're willing to spend. But like in the bike world, what I found was they didn't want, they didn't enjoy designing a bike where the primary considerations were things like, is there a basket on the back? Does it work with a kickstand? Can my kid maneuver it? Does it not break very often? They wanted to design for speed, agility, off-roading. And so you just need like, that's fine. I think most of the people listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs. They're working on their own. So if you want to do something, you're like, I don't care if I don't make a lot of money. I want to be in my space that I love. And I want to engage with other people that love the thing that I love. More power to you. You can totally do that because it's just your business. But if you're trying to make money, you might want to spend a little more time really being objective about the market size and where you can build a recurring revenue business. So is it just as simple as like finding something and then really like niching down? I think, yeah. I mean, people talk about niching down. I think that's a really good thing, but it's also about finding a niche that is going to sign up, get value and stay. Hmm. So each of those things, like what is going to make them, like, how are you going to find them so that they sign up? And are they going to get value and say, this is totally worth my $29.99, right? And then the last thing is, and this is going to be part of my new normal. This is going to be a habit for me. I'm not going to buy meat at the supermarket anymore. I'm going to use, you know, the butcher box. I'm not going to do this. This is my new way of whatever it is, getting my entertainment, getting my whatever. And I think that's the really important thing is to have product market fit. Meaning that if you stopped your company tomorrow, people would call you crying. Hmm. That's like a pretty good indicator. They would be really, really sad if you went out of business. They'd say, hey, but you're how I get through my days or you're the thing I look forward to, or you're how I manage whatever. This is how I feed my dog. This is how I make sure that my skin glows. What am I going to do next? That's product market fit. Yeah, Robbie, that's just so many things I want to pack. I'm sorry, I'm writing notes here. So we're going to take a quick break. Thank today's sponsor. And when we get back, I want to unpack some of this stuff because there's so many things I want to get into with you. And some of the things you've mentioned before that I kind of want to tee up for the next half. So we're going to do that as soon as we thank today's sponsors. Hey guys, I'm very excited to be joined by Steve Krakauer from Harbor Marketing Agency today. Steve and I have been working together over the last few months with our subscription box, Louis and Leia. And since then, we've seen some tremendous growth. I'm super excited to share with you Steve's incredible new offer. Steve, you want to share with us what you got going on? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Eric. So at this point, we've helped multiple subscription box companies scale to seven plus figures. And throughout our time doing this, we've learned exactly what works and what does not work in the subscription box industry. So now with every new client, we run through what we call a results action plan. Basically, what this is, is a comprehensive audit of your entire business. It starts by diving into business intelligence. That includes your founding story, your value proposition, your market, your customer demographics and psychographics and everything that we need to know about the foundation of your business. From there, we perform an audit of all of your marketing touch points. That includes going through your website, your ad accounts, your email marketing, and your social media pages with a fine-tooth comb 
to identify where the gaps in your marketing funnel are. From there, we put together a detailed plan that lays out exactly what needs to be done to get your subscription box to where you want to be. So this puts you in control of your growth. This plan has worked wonders for our clients. So if you're interested, book a call with us at harbormarketingagency.com. And if you're not 100% satisfied with the plan, we will give you a 100% refund. That sounds incredible, Steve. And I know you're taking a full holistic approach here. So I love that. This is great stuff. I know it's worked for us and it's worked for others. Like we mentioned, Bambox, Shaker and Spoon, Butterfly Box. You guys have helped them really scale and grow their boxes. There's no guarantees in life, but this is as close as it gets, right? Absolutely. We try to make it as risk-free as we possibly can for our clients. And honestly, it's the best approach that you can take if you're really serious about scaling up your business. You want to make sure that you're taking a comprehensive approach, looking at every single customer touchpoint and doing everything you can to convert that visitor into a paying customer. Yeah, I love that. You're not just throwing money at Facebook ads and hoping things grow. You're actually having an action detailed plan, which is what results action plan through Harbor Marketing Agency. So guys, take up Steve and his incredible new offer. If you're interested, make sure to contact them at harbormarketingagency.com. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Eric. All right, we are back with Robbie Kelman Baxter. And before the break, we talked about a lot of different things, Robbie. I know some of them we want to unpack <laughs> to, maybe some tangible examples of how you help your clients, those kind of things. But I also forgot to mention of all the things you do and have done, keynote speaker, author, all these different things, there's also a new podcast. You want to just quickly maybe touch on that the subscription stories, true tales from the trenches? Yeah, I started this as my how I spent my COVID vacation, my forced <laughs> vacation. <laughs> and I just went out and I interviewed a really broad range of people in the subscription world. Some subscription box companies, I interviewed the you know founder of Our Shelves, which is a subscription box with diverse kids stories, and the founder of Vinyl Me Please, which is a record subscription. But I also interviewed people from a wide range of companies, including Impossible Foods and Nike, about their subscription strategies and also about their member mindset, how they think about what is it about the culture that they've created and the approach that they take and the kinds of metrics that they use that allow them to get recurring revenue. Because while this show is about subscriptions, it's also about how do you build forever transactions with the people you serve? How do you get them to keep coming back? And that's really kind of been at the core of what I'm doing on the podcast. Love that. So guys, make sure to go subscribe to that if you're at all into mm-hmm. subscriptions, which I know you are because you're listening to the subscription box <laughs> show. But this is an awesome podcast, Subscription Stories with Robbie Kelman Baxter. So search for that in your favorite podcast player and subscribe and follow. Hit that follow button for sure. You know, you mentioned something Nike before we get into like what we want to talk about in the second half. You mentioned Nike and it's not a trend anymore. Like all the big companies are having some kind of memberships. You don't just go to the mall, pick up your Nike shoes. You can get a Nike box. Is there an advantage? Well, there's obviously an advantage, but is there maybe something happening now, like in the industry now that's becoming more the norm that you have a lot of bootstrap companies, like for example, ours, Louis and Leia, and then you have like Nike coming out that some people are kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm sick of the big brand and there's an opportunity for smaller brands or is it, is there room for both? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think there's always room for both. And I'm old enough to have seen a lot of going from one end of the continuum to the other and then swinging back. Mm. And what happens is brands like Nike that have really broad selection, consistent quality, easy to find. There's a lot of reasons why people 
would enjoy that brand. But then at the same time, people, there might be gaps. There might be very small niches that whose needs aren't being met. There might be people who want something that doesn't look like what everybody else is wearing. There might be something that goes beyond the shoe itself, the community, the delivery experience, the expert advice, whatever it is around a, a new brand where somebody might say, you know, I prefer that to this big behemoth. So there's always room. There's always room for new entrants. I thought what you were going to ask about was Nike's move to being direct and to doing, they've experimented with subscription boxes. They also have Nike membership. They also have pulled out of a lot of retailers, including most famously Amazon, because they want to have a closer relationship with their customer. And it's core to their strategy going forward. And I think that is a really big trend right now that companies want to know their consumers. And a big advantage, I think, of of these subscription box businesses is you really know your customer. You know what they like, you know which products they like, you get direct feedback from them. And that allows you to plan more thoughtfully for the future. Hmm. That's interesting. And I did not know they pulled out of Amazon, which is, uh, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I guess when you have a company like Nike, they can kind of be their own distribution, right? It's pretty risky though. I mean, you know, in hindsight, you're like, of course you can, you're you're Nike, but when you're doing it, I mean, most people, you know, I talk about this idea of a forever promise or forever transaction. It's that you become a part of a customer's habit so that they say, I start there. And if I don't get this thing that I really need there, I'll go somewhere else, but I'll start there. And that's how many people feel about Amazon, right? Like if I have to buy something, whether it's a hammer or a bathing suit for my son, I'm going to go to Amazon first. And if Amazon doesn't have it, then I'll go to any number of other places, but it's just easier, right? They get it. It comes tomorrow, right? I get a pretty fair price. I can return it easily. So pulling out of a place like that and hoping that your brand is so appealing that people will make the extra effort to find you is a risky thing. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think going back to my original question was, I think you can also separate yourself as a smaller brand if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm not, obviously you're not Nike, but you're Sue from Arizona with her subscription box. Well, listen, you know, you can personalize your box a lot more than these big companies can yeah. as well. You can write you handwritten can. notes, you can do, right? Is there anything? You- yeah, absolutely. So what I would say is you take a step back and you say, I am serving this audience, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I solve their problem or achieve their goal? What else can I do? The product itself, I mean, that's how I feel about subscription boxes. The products themselves, that's table stakes. That's the starting point is having an interesting assortment. But then you think about why did they sign up in the first place? What is it that they're hoping to achieve? And what else can I do? Are they hoping to find other people like them? Are they hoping to get more enjoyment out of their hobby? Are they hoping to look unique and stylish? And maybe they'd benefit not just from the shoes in the box, but from some expert advice or some pictures that are inspiring. So that's really, I think, where your smaller brands can have a huge advantage because you're really, really laser focused on a very narrow segment and you don't have to be all things to all people. And you can actually build a pretty big business Mm -hmm. by focusing on a very narrow segment. And that's really, like, I think if you were asking before, what is the biggest causes of failure? I think one of them is, you know, all these companies that are like, I have this product. Who's it for? It's for everybody. It's for everybody. And you're like, no. You know, it's not like, it's not just even for mom. Like we were talking about in the break about product for moms. There's a lot of different moms, Mm. right? Which moms are you talking about? Are you talking about working moms, single moms, moms of older kids, moms of younger kids, moms that live in big cities, moms that live in rural areas, moms that think of themselves as do-it-yourselfers, moms that don't like getting their hands dirty. If you focus like that and you say, I'm focusing on moms who have this problem and are in this kind of environment and are trying to accomplish that. Okay. Right? 
So then I'm going to take you on a, a fun little ride here. So let's, uh, do you want to do a real life example then on how you would oh, help a client? To. Okay, yeah. cool. So let's say I could afford your services <laughs> and you're trying to help out Louis and Leia, which is my subscription box company. So it's for moms. Okay. It's for new or expecting moms. And we typically, our boxes are from birth. So anything to do with the birth all the way to the first birthday. That's kind of like our area of expertise. Being parents mm-hmm. of five, we're right in that space. And we kind of live it, we breathe it, we are it. So we curate our boxes for, we have monthly boxes for new moms and expecting moms. And this is who we target. Now, should we be niching down even more or should I just kind of let you take it from here? Um, it depends on where you are in your journey, first of all. But I think it's always good to niche down or to really be clear on who you serve really well and who you don't serve. So an exercise that I do a lot with my clients is you might think that I would work really well for this person, but we actually don't. And here's why. And the more clear you are on that communication. So for example, you say new moms, is it new moms with other kids, new moms with no kids? And what is the reason that they're coming to you, right? Are they coming to you for a little treat for themselves? Are they coming to you to learn? Are they coming to you because it's cheaper? Are they coming to learn about new products? All of that is going to help you kind of figure out, well, what else can I do for her? And also, who am I not serving so I can get really laser focused in the channels that I use and in the messaging I use, right? And so the more clear you can be and the more signals you can put in the artwork you have, in the messaging you use, because you want to bring in the right people, not just who are going to sign up, as you know, but who are going to stay. That's right. Right. If you have product that goes all the way to one year and then it's not as relevant, you probably don't want someone to come in at nine months. You really want to get people who are pregnant or just giving birth. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe new moms, first time moms might be a better audience than moms on kid number three who kind of have some stuff already and kind of know what they're doing. Yeah. You're bang on. Figuring that out and figuring how do I find them and how do I message in a way that says, you're a new mom. You've never had a baby before, hmm. right? Because if you get the mom with the three kids, she might say, this was really fun. And I loved getting one box, but I go to Target and I can get everything really cheap or, you know, I already that, have like, one yeah. of those. I have those up in the attic. I'll just pull it down. So yeah. <laughs> I think it's really important to get really clear on who you serve so that it's not just to attract people. And I think this is something people don't always understand, but it's also so that you can retain them because that's where the real money is, is in the retention. Mm-hmm. And you have a nice 12 month window or maybe a 13 month if you get them before they had their baby. One of the questions is, is 13 months a good lifetime for that relationship? Or are you thinking like, is there a way to expand that? Is there demand to push it? Or are you like, nope, 13 months, if I can keep the customer for seven months, that is great for me. And I don't need to go any further. That's fine too. But just getting super clear on that as well. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I think in the beginning, especially we're like, oh, let's just be any mom. But as we learned too, and there's also another area, and I'd be fascinated to know what you think about this. What we've discovered with our box is that a lot of the moms, especially we started targeting more like the pregnant moms because we want even up to 18 months because you know if we can get mm. them at you know three, four months in, they're really excited, mm-hmm. right? They're just, they're newly pregnant, yeah. right? So we're finding it, but sometimes like, oh, maybe they don't have that disposable income, but guess who does? Their moms. Grandma. (laughs) Grandma. So is there something where sometimes you have to like also focus on two demographics? Yeah. Well, so in some words, it's the same demographic because it's still, you're looking for people that are about to have a baby, but then you're also looking for people who love them, Mm -hmm. their mom, their mother-in-law, their girlfriends, whatever. It's a great gift, Mm -hmm. but it's still, you know, you still have to really know the user well, but then you also, yes, you do have to know the buyer and the user. And there's a lot of B2B, 
businesses where you have a buyer and then a, a user and they're different. So I did a lot of work with a company called Kerbo, weight loss app for children. And we had to do, it's now part of, it was acquired by Weight Watchers. But one of the things that we really had to do was we had to figure out messaging for the child and messaging for mom. And in most cases, mom was buying and the child was using it. But in some cases, the child, especially like the tweens and teens, they were actually going online looking for weight loss solutions and then coming to their parents saying, will you pay for this for me? So getting really clear on who that buyer is. And the other point that I wanted to just pull out, because it's such a good point that you brought up, Mm -hmm. is that when people are in moments of inflection, when their life is being disrupted, that is when they're most receptive to a new habit. Right. So I'm pregnant. My life is about to change. That is a moment where I am making a lot of new decisions, right? I'm probably going to, you know, in the next 18 months, I'm going to buy a ton of baby stuff, but I might also buy a new car. I might also move to the suburbs. I might also change my career. I mean, there's a lot of decisions. I might hire a nanny or daycare, a lot of decisions that are going to get made with the birth of that first child. So like, you know, we talked about bad places to be in business. If your business aligns with a big moment of transition for your target audience, it's going to be easier to find those people. And those people are going to be more receptive to your initial offer. Bang on. I love that. So with that, now, how are ways to get in front of these people? Is there certain methods or certain paid ads or is there certain organic reaches that you think work really well in today's landscape? Do you want to touch on those? Yeah. I mean, there's as many tactics as there are people, right? I mean, you can come up with so many different ideas, both in Mm -hmm. terms of different channels and then different messages and different calls to action and different promotions and so on. But what I would say is you want to really break it down and kind of figure out where do I find the people who are most ready to buy and get value and then maybe share it. So one of the things that I encourage my clients to think about is how referable is your business? Some are and some aren't, right? I worked with Intuit, which is accounting software for small business owners. You know what I learned is that small business owners, they talk to each other all the time about everything except accounting. They don't want to, right? They want to talk about how they get new customers. They want to talk about the stress of work, but they do not want to talk about their accounting software. So not a particularly word of mouth. Now, accountants talk to each other about accounting software. So if Uh. you're selling to accountants, that's different. But so figure out if your business is word of mouth is going to be, you know, play a role. And then you think about where do you want to light a fire? And then how do you want to set up the kindling so that the fire grows? So are you, sorry, term, Robbie, are you specifically yeah. just talking about like a referral candy or something, some kind of software like that to plug in? That's one way, but I think it's also about setting the expectation among your consumers. Why would I want to do it? And how does it happen? And does it happen organically or is it inorganically? And do I have to motivate them with benefits or is it something that they would do naturally? So that's something that I would think about. And then in terms of, I mean, I'm just trying to go backwards and say, Where do you acquire them? Another thing that I believe in is partnerships. Where are those people? When I worked with Netflix, something that I found really interesting was that with some sources of acquisition, because I was working on all of these different acquisition channels, right? All these different ways to bring people into Netflix when nobody had heard of Netflix, right? (laughs) And so Netflix had deals with Dell Computer where they had flyers inside the box of new computers, but then they also had deals with the AARP, right? Mm. And they also had deals with Orville Redenbacher, and some of those partners, and then of course they were doing you know, keyword search and organic search and traditional billboards. I mean, they experimented with everything. I mean, this was 2000, 2001, so it's a pretty long time ago. But one of the things that was interesting to me is that some of those partners wanted to be paid 
right? They were like, they had more of an affiliate mindset. Like okay. every lead I generate, I want you to pay me. They might be very motivated and do a great job, but some of them were really more motivated by helping their, that some of these affiliate partners, they wanted a spiff. They wanted 20 bucks per new lead that I generated that converted into a subscriber. Mm-hmm. But then we found that a lot of them just wanted a cool factor. They wanted to be associated. They wanted to have something to offer. And so really getting strategic about who would want to recommend you because a recommended offer is better than one that has no credibility associated with it. Right. So being really scrappy and strategic about who might want to recommend you and might not need to be paid is, I think, a really smart thing. So in your case, that might be pediatricians, obstetricians, baby stores, just trying to figure out who would find what you have complimentary, whether it was an affiliate relationship or a direct relationship. I love that. Is there a certain way where you would even consider going with other subscription boxes and partnering with them? And how would you reach out to these people? So other subscription boxes, potentially, if they're aligned, and maybe even if you can save money on delivery and returns, you know, yeah. um, I think that the operational side is just as important as the marketing front end side. We haven't really talked about that at all, but in the world of subscription boxes, I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of good operations and good fulfillment and mm. how much it costs to do that well, to be able to manage returns, to be able to manage your shipping costs, even to manage your your ordering. Like I remember sitting next to I was at a subscription box conference and I was at lunch sitting at a table with a bunch of entrepreneurs. And this woman was telling me how she had this awesome makeup box. And she actually was in Canada and she was telling me, I mean, she was very stylish, lovely woman. And she was telling me how she had this great, she always would go to the stores and she'd find the best makeup and she'd make these awesome boxes. And she was like, but you know, I have to charge more than Ipsy and whatever the Sephora box is called and all the stuff. She's like, because yep. number one, I'm coming from Canada. So I have to pay extra shipping to go into the United States. And number two, I have to buy it at retail. And I was like, well, if you're buying it at retail and you're charging a markup and then you're charging shipping, <laughs> it's not such a good deal. And yeah. I understand how you got there, but you spent a lot of time thinking about the right products, but you didn't spend enough time thinking through the entire offering and how you were going to do it in a cost-effective way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, thinking that through, I think is is really important. I didn't answer the question that you asked. So, No, you did. The question was just like on the partnerships, like if there's a strategic way and they, oh, let's say about yeah. the putting itself in each other's boxes, right? Yeah. So putting things in each other's boxes is a great way. So putting a sample or an offer into somebody else's box is a great idea if it's the same audience or if the audience is an extension. So for example, you said your box goes to about 12 months. If you find somebody who has an offer for toddlers, that would be really natural. Or if you said, we found that many of our families, we talked about when you have a baby, you make a lot of other new decisions. One of them might be to get a dog, right? So Mm. you might have a dog food partner or a dog, or you might say people get dogs right before they have their first child. So and then the dog feels ignored. And so maybe this is the perfect time to introduce a bark box, yeah. right? To like, so thinking about that, thinking about what you want to do is you want to think about the journey that your member's on and where you fit on that journey. Yeah. And then think about what else is going on in their life that you could credibly help with, whether it's through your own box or whether it's through partners. And the partners could be other boxes and they could just be other products. And the way to reach out, I think there's sort of two ways. I've actually created a course on networking on LinkedIn learning, which I'm happy to make free for your listeners. I can give it. Amazing. Yeah, that'd be Um, great. And it's a networking for sales. And the most important thing about networking is that you do it before you need something. And so you're Hmm. constantly, it's a habit. It's like exercise. 
you do it every day. You reach out to a few people, you follow up with a few people, you try to help a few people, um, you build organic relationships. And then when you need something, it's a lot easier to reach out to them. But if you are reaching out cold, let's say that today you said, you know, Robbie, that's a brilliant idea. I want to reach out to someone at BarkBox. How do I do that? (laughs) Right? So what I would do is I would reach out. First, if I could find their email address, that's great, or their phone number. If I can find somebody who knows them that I know, Mm -hmm. and I can get a a warm introduction, that's a thousand times better. Yeah. And if you can't do that, then if you have to go cold, be really clear about what your ask is and what's in it for them and what's in it for you. And so you might say, hey, I have a subscription box. I have this many subscribers, and this is what their profile is. And I had this idea that a lot of them have dogs, and I'm wondering if there might be a way we could partner. Would you be open to a conversation, say, 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. Right. Love that. And so you're really clear about what you're doing. You're not overselling yourself. You're explaining to them why it might be valuable. They can say no if it's not something they're interested in. But I think that's the way to do it. And the things that I find really annoying in networking are when people reach out to me and they want something and they don't know me and they it's not clear what's in it for me and they're not asking for a favor. Right. You know, they're just kind of like, hey, Robbie, you should help me with this because it'll be in your best interest. And you're like, well, why? Have you thought about, do you even know who I am? Like, have you thought at all about what it would be like to be in my shoes? But if you have a value proposition that actually makes sense for the other person, put it out there. Yeah. Um, Even if they don't buy from you or partner with you right then, you have the relationship with this other subscription box. Right. But I think the better strategy is to like what you're doing, which is building all these relationships with other subscription box entrepreneurs and vendors and experts. And that way, when you need something or you have a challenge, or you want to do something new, you have this community that you can lean into. Yeah, you make such a great point. And I think like leaning with value and networking is a long-term game and not something you want to use, but you want to build your network, right? You want to really build this thing. And I think even before starting our subscription box, we really focused on building our network because we came from, like I said, blue-collared roots with knowing nothing in business, knowing no one in business, knowing nothing about business. So we just started, let's just grow our network first. And I joined a mastermind. I listened to some networking podcasts. I went to a few conferences. And I don't know if you want to touch on conferences because you keynote speak a lot and you do some keynote speaking and I'm not too sure if one of them you're doing this summer you can mention yet but I know like the power of networking you must know more than anyone oh that's a value because you know how often Robbie I get people tell me I'm not too sure if I want to invest in going to this conference you know a or conference b or even joining the virtual conference because it's going to cost me a hundred bucks or whatever the case is but is it worth it in your opinion or am I overblowing it here Well, I would say, no, I don't think you are. I think, first of all, it always depends, right? Of whether somebody says, should I go to the conference? It depends what conference and it depends what you need and where you are in your career. If you have literally no money, then obviously don't do it. And if it's the wrong conference, it can feel like a big waste of time, which I have done both as a conference attendee. And then I've, I've gone to conferences as a keynote speaker where there's really not a huge amount of value. And I mean, there's always value in networking with anyone, but like where you know, there's not really an obvious way that we can help each other. Hmm. But going to a conference, a subscription entrepreneurs conference, a subscription box conference, a direct-to-consumer conference, whatever the areas that you're trying to learn about, a marketing conference or a fulfillment conference or whatever. You're right. I mean, there's just so many benefits of a conference. Number one, even if the conference is terrible, you get out of your own way and you have like two or three days where you're in a different place and you're able to just think bigger. Right. Mm, it's like just yeah. the act of leaving and giving yourself space to invest, investing in the business 
working, what do they say, working on the business rather than working inside the business. That's right. Um, that's valuable. I think the second thing is if it's the right topic, the speakers just being there in person, like you hear all kinds of ideas and you get a lot of inspiration and it gets you really thinking bigger about your business and it gets you excited about your business. And so that's really right. valuable. Yeah. And then the third thing is the community the people that are there that you can talk to, that you can brainstorm with, and that become your network into the future. I think if you are going to go to a conference and it is expensive, ways to make the most of it is to really look carefully at all the speakers, maybe reach out to the speakers you're most interested in advance of coming and say, I'm coming to this conference because Mm -hmm. I want to hear you speak. I'm doing, and then explain a little bit about what you're doing. And then when you get there, say, hey, I'm Robbie. I was the one that sent you that email about how I'm whatever you're going to get a better response from that speaker if that's somebody you want to connect with. And then also look at the list of people who are attending, do the same thing. Hey, I see that you're attending this conference. You're BarkBox. I'm baby. I want to meet you. Maybe we can grab a coffee between sessions. I see that there's 15 minute breaks every two hours. Let's try to grab one of those. So the more you invest up front, the more value you're going to get out of that conference. Yeah, you're so spot on. I mean, you know, um, one of my mentors coming in business was Travis Chappell. Uh, he's got a top 25 business podcast called Build Your Network. He's amazing. And he always talks about like leaning with value and just all the things you talk about networking is just so spot on, like reaching out before. There's certain things you want to do and people just don't think of these things. They go there and they try to get, take as much value from I guess the conference or from speakers and try to pick people's brains and all these different things and try to handle business cards. But you should also lean with value and try to set yourself up for success and get a little bit out of your comfort zone, I think will go a long way. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I'd add, because you brought up such a poignant moment where you said, you know, and I didn't know what I was doing. I'm this blue collar guy and we're trying to start this new thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't actually have anything I can offer you right now, except my appreciation, right? Hmm. I'm just getting started. I mean, If you think back, if you look at people who are coming up behind you now, I'm sure like you sometimes look at them and they're like, and you and I, like we can exchange ideas and we can help each other. And you're looking at them and you're like, you haven't even started yet, but I'm delighted to help you because I remember what that felt like. 100%. So don't feel like you have to come up with something to offer them. Sometimes you can just say, I'm just getting started and I'd be so grateful. You know, I have this specific question or this specific problem, or I just want to sit at your feet and listen to you talk to other people because you have a lot to share. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. And I think yeah. a lot of people are very motivated to help people who come up behind them. Like in my networking course, I always say there's like seven types of people that you want to have in your network. And one of them is the people that are coming up behind you. Mm. And the reason is there's lots of reasons. One of them is people that are getting started are going to have fresh ideas and do things a different way because they're looking for their solutions and you've already found your solution. So you may not be looking at what's new. Yeah. And so you might be falling behind and not even realize it but even more importantly, good karma, right? Like you have to help the people coming up behind you. And a lot of successful people have that as a value. Yeah. So yeah, that's a great point. Cause I remember Travis saying those things and you're saying the same thing, like you lean with value. Like I got nothing to offer you, but I can take your course. That was my way of adding value, right? I mean, I could take, and I don't have a course to sell, but I'm just saying like he had, and I'm so I could take your course. I could join your mastermind and kind of, that was my, sometimes it's just, monetarily as well, I guess, as well. Right, of course. Things. I mean, well, buy the guy's book before you go and ask his questions. Or like, you know, say, hey, I read your book or whatever, right? If someone is trying to reach out to you, for example, right? Like maybe they don't have nothing to offer Robbie, the subscription expert, but they could read your book and come back with you with some, you know, like you said, pointed questions and just more value on who you are. And that could be right. the, the exchange. 
Right. Well, there's a few different things that you talk about there. One of them is you can pay experts for their advice, right? Join their mastermind, take their class, whatever. Second thing is when you go to somebody that you want to network with, be prepared. If they wrote a book on the topic that you're interested in, read the darn book before you ask them your question. <laughs> Please, yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of a courtesy. And that's yeah. different because that's about just building a relationship. If you're going to network with somebody, it's funny because yesterday I was, I had a networking call with this guy and we'd never met, but we have a lot of things in common. And he was like, that's so funny. He was, I saw that you worked in New York. What was that about? Because he lives in New York. And I was like, oh my God, you, it took him two minutes, I'm sure. But like, he actually read my LinkedIn profile and saw that, you know, from 1990 to 1992, I worked for the city of New York and he had spent a little time getting to know me before he got to know me, which warmed me up and made me like, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but like when somebody knows something about you and they've done the effort, it makes you like them more. Well, for sure it does. I mean, it's just a natural human inclination. Like at least, you know, like this guy was not just using you or whatever for whatever, for his question and he takes off it's like thanks okay bye i guess you know like no i couldn't agree more and that guy was did the right way and it doesn't have to be like you have to do a full day research on a person but just kind of before you get to network and go to these conferences kind of know about the speakers a bit so if you do happen to be able to shake their hands or meet them you have a little bit of knowledge about them so i mean um I think we've covered a lot. I want to be respectful of your time, Robbie. So if you're okay with it, if there's nothing else you want to add to what we were talking about, I'm ready to head over to the unboxing round. Are you? Yeah. Robbie, what is the most frequently asked question you get asked from some of your clients and customers? Why aren't my customers staying with me? Ah, is there uh, something you could add there? I mean, it's a loaded (laughs) question. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think when I first started consulting to subscription businesses, they were all focused on acquisition. And I spent a lot of time educating them on the importance of retention, which now I think most subscription entrepreneurs understand, but I think they don't tend to look at all of the levers that they have to improve retention. So a lot of people, when they think about how do I improve retention, they go right to the moment of cancellation and what can I offer? How can I make it harder to cancel? You know, those are usually two things, carrot and stick. But I think most companies, if you look further up the chain, you start to see a lot of other opportunities to maximize retention. So you can maximize retention by picking the right people, by marketing to the right people. If you market to the wrong people, they're not going to stay as long. Mm -hmm. At the moment of transaction, if you bring them in for the right reasons, they're more likely to stay for a long time. And then when you onboard them, I think this is the most overlooked lever for building engagement and retention. You want to help them build the understanding and the habits that are going to keep them for a long time. So for example, let's say you have a box of energy bars, right? You want to set the expectation maybe that you don't have to eat them all. If one of them, you're getting such a good deal, you know, you're paying for the price of five bars, you're getting 10 bars, which means if you don't like half of them, don't eat them, throw them away, give them to your neighbor. Don't feel bad about it because we know that one of the reasons people cancel food subscriptions and consumable subscriptions in general is because they feel guilty about not using it all. And so educating them in the onboarding experience that they can cancel, I mean, that they can throw some of it away or give it away or not use it and still get value, it's going to reduce subscription guilt and it's going to keep them longer. So those are some of the ways that I think the organizations don't always think as strategically as they can about retention. Love that. Robbie, you're a consultant, you're a coach, trainer, you do all these things within the industry, but what if you could hire anyone as your mentor or coach, who would it be and why? Oh, that's a good question. I used to say Tony Robbins just because he optimizes everything. And I think that that 
that might be the one. And also, I mean, he's continued to evolve himself. I'm also, you know, there's some people that I really like. Brene Brown, I think would be somebody that I would want to spend some time with. I don't know. It's a really good question. And then there's like, you know, some of the business school, Scott Galloway from a professional perspective, you know, he's somebody whose brain I'd love to pick, although I don't use that expression, but somebody that I'd love to learn from. Robbie, what is one thing you think every subscription box entrepreneur needs to know? The box is the table stakes. It's the starting point. You need to think about how you layer in more value beyond the products in the box to help your customer achieve their goals, solve their problems, feel better about their lives. And that's how you're going to build stickiness and loyalty. Robbie, what is your favorite subscription box, either as a client or a customer or as a company you respect? Hmm. Well, right now, the one that I'm really into is Matilda's Bloom Box, (laughs) which is a subscription for flowers. And you get a video to learn how to arrange the flowers. And they send a lot of information about the flower growers, where they're getting the flowers from, how they got them, why they picked them, what's challenging about being a grower, what's challenging about being a florist. And the flowers are gorgeous. So that's probably my favorite right now. Robbie, what is the number one trend you see in subscriptions in 2021? I think the ubiquity of subscriptions is what we're going to see. Every business, think of a brand think of a company, they are working on subscription right now, not just in physical products, not just subscription boxes, but pretty much anything you can imagine from software to hardware, to durable goods, to manufacturing, to professional services. Everybody is trying to figure out recurring revenue. And so there's a lot of subscription fatigue out there. Consumers and business buyers alike are weary, they're picky, They're demanding their expectations of what they want to get from a subscription provider is much more sophisticated than what it might have been even a year ago. Hmm. Yeah, you're bang on. And I think uh, people coming in the industry underestimate maybe how difficult it might be because they can become from an e-commerce store where it's a one-off sale and it's fairly easy to sell a shirt, like I would say, for $15. But it's a different thing when you got to sell that shirt 12 times or whatever you're selling, right? So subscription fatigue is definitely a thing where I think we're going to have to kind of counter, I guess, if you will. Anything in the mix coming up with you? You have your brand new book, which I can see in the background there, which is the Forever Transaction. Is there anything else in the mix that you're coming up with? Maybe a course or anything else? I know you're going to be keynoting some conferences. I'm not too sure if you can touch on them or not yet. Yeah, I I can't say the conference. I'm keynoting a big digital marketing conference that's coming up this fall, which will be on my website probably in the next month or two. And I'm coming out, I did a new course with FIP, which is the media association about how to launch and scale your subscription model. And I have another course coming out that is more of a self-serve course for solopreneurs. It should be out this fall on my website. Yes, we're going to have all those in the show notes. So speaking of which, what's the best way for people to connect with you today? I mean, very easy to find. Robbie Kelman Baxter is my (laughs) website and you can find me on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. And my email address is on the last page of my books. So you can find me that way as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're probably the most active on LinkedIn or 
Yeah. My, yeah. That's kind of where I see most of your stuff as well. She's very active on LinkedIn. Lots of great stuff on this. So make sure to follow her guys and, and guys and gals, and you're going to get a ton from it and join her email list. She always sends a lot of subscription related stuff. That's good for us. So with that, I guess the last thing before we sign off and say goodbye, this has been a ton of, I mean, honestly, I cut it off short here. I don't know how long we've been going, but yeah. I could have talked with you for hours. So I really appreciate you doing this. I really look up to all the stuff you do. So thanks again. But do you have one final parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with the listeners? I think the thing to remember is that you have to love your customer more than what's in your box. Of course, you drop some gold like that. Of course you would. So (laughs) with that, Robbie, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you and your time and everything that you do for the subscription industry. I know, I don't know if you said this on or off air, but you always like to give back to the industry. And this is a fantastic way. I know the listeners will appreciate. So thank you again. Oh, it's a real pleasure. And I know how generous you've been with the Subscription Box community with all the work that you've done and your podcast. And I'm honored and delighted to be part of it. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Subscription Box Show. What a great conversation. I could have honestly talked shop with Robbie for hours. She is such a giver to our industry. So honestly, do yourselves a favor and go and follow her on LinkedIn and join her email list. She sends a ton of subscription gold there all of the time. And of course, grab her books. They are essentially the part one and part twos of how to do subscription. All links are also available in the show notes. So go and check them out. So big thanks again goes out to Robbie for doing this. What an honor. And big thanks to the proud sponsors of this episode, Harbor Marketing and Manscaped. Make sure to get your free audit and check out all the testimonials and businesses Harbor has helped and see if you would be a fit to be their next success story. And of course, make sure to check out manscaped.com and use our discount code TSBS for 20% off the brand new Lawnmower 4.0. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a game changer if you take care of your nether regions. But even if you've never, now's your chance. Makes a great gift too, by the way. Your significant other will thank you. So thanks again to Manscaped and to Harbor Marketing. All the links are also available in the show notes. And make sure to tune in on Friday for the next episode of Focus Friday, where we tackle a hot industry topic to help you and your business thrive. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Eric Music. And remember, words can inspire, thoughts can provoke, but only action truly brings you closer to your dreams. That's all for this episode of the Subscription Box Show. But your next unboxing is only a few clicks away. Head over to the thesubscriptionboxshow.com to connect with your host on social media or book a call to give your input on today's episode and what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes of the Subscription Box Show. Remember, don't be afraid of change. Be afraid of standing still.